Word on Fire is brought to you by Catholic Cemeteries, serving the Chicago area since 1837. This is Cardinal Francis George, and I invite you to join me for the next few minutes to reflect with Father Robert Barron on the Word of God, which is the Word on Fire. Father Barron will challenge us to open our hearts to the Word on Fire, which is God's Word of love for each of us. If our hearts are open, the Lord can change and transform us so that we might speak with love about the one who is love. The Archdiocese of Chicago, through the generosity of Sacred Heart Parish in Winnetka, now presents The Word on Fire. Peace be with you. Friends, our readings for this weekend center around the theme that we can never speak of enough. The divinity of Jesus. There's been a disturbing tendency in recent years to turn Jesus into an inspiring spiritual teacher, like the Buddha or like Sufi mystics. I just finished reading Eckhart Tolle's book, the one that Oprah has been recommending to the whole country. There are some good things in that book, spiritual teaching. But that's what really bugged me about it was the tendency to reduce Jesus to one inspiring teacher among many. Well, see, if that's all he is, frankly, the heck with him. The Gospels are never content with such a reductive description. Though they present him quite clearly as a teacher, think of the Sermon on the Mount and the parables, etc., they know that he's infinitely more than that. There's something else at stake in him and in our relationship to him. Let's start with our Gospel, taken from the 14th chapter of Matthew. After miraculously feeding the people, Jesus repairs to the mountain to pray while his disciples set out in a boat. While they're being tossed about by the waves on their night journey, Jesus comes walking toward them on the sea. I'm just back, by the way, from Israel. I was there filming the first episode of a 10-part documentary I'm doing. And we spent a couple of days around the Sea of Galilee. So whenever I read these stories now, I've got these vivid images of that area. There's Jesus walking on the sea. The lordship over the sea was one of the unique characteristics of God in the Old Testament. I mentioned to you before, I think, how ancient people were especially terrified of the sea. This would apply to Galilean fishermen, too. So here's Jesus embodying Yahweh's lordship over the elements. But there's more to this image too, I think. At the very beginning of the book of Genesis, we hear that the Spirit of the Lord hovered over the surface of the tohu vabohu. That means that primal chaos over the stormy waters, if you will. Yahweh's presence, his spirit, his ruach, his breath, bringing order out of chaos. No first century Jew experiencing this event or reading this story would have missed that Genesis overtone. Jesus walking on the water is the incarnation of Yahweh's peaceful, creative power. Now, in case we miss these rather obvious overtones, Jesus adds even a further note. 
In their terror, they think they're seeing a ghost. A bit like the same disciples when they saw the risen Jesus. But he reassures them. He says, take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. That little phrase, it is I, is the English rendering of the Greek ego eimi. I am. Ego eimi evokes Exodus 3.14. When Moses asked God, what's your name? He responded, ego eimi ho'on, in the Greek of the Septuagint. I am who I am. So when Jesus, walking on the water, says to them, I am, it is I, do not be afraid. He is the presence of Yahweh, the creator and redeemer of his people in the flesh. Now, lest we think this is just an inspiring episode from the past, we hear of Peter and of the disciples in the boat. Whenever the Gospels speak of Peter and the disciples in a boat, we're dealing with a symbol of the church. It's all of us, disciples of Jesus, making our way through the stormy waters of history. We hear the words, be not afraid, coming from the divine Christ. How powerful that when Karl Wojtyla was elected Pope, the first words we heard from him were these, be not afraid. It became a light motif of his papacy, be not afraid. Those are the words of the divine Christ to his church up and down the ages. This is the only one, this divine one, who can truly assure us that we don't have to be afraid. I want you to reflect a little bit on this. Anybody else in this world, politician, social activist, philosopher, leader, spiritual teacher, physician, is incapable of giving us this real and final assurance. Why? Because they're in the tohu vabohu with the rest of us. They can give us, at best, a kind of mitigated peace. They can hold off our fear for a time. But none of these figures, nobody in the world, can give us peace that lasts. Peace that reaches down to the bottom of the heart and the soul. Who alone can give that? God. That's why the divinity of Jesus matters so much. If he is, as Eckhart Tolle and many others say, just one more spiritual teacher, well, he can give us interesting insights. He can help us make our way through life more peacefully. But he can't give us this final soul-transforming peace. Nobody short of the Divine One could possibly give us such power and confidence. Notice, please, that once Peter looks away from Christ and notices the waves, he begins to sink. When we put our confidence in anyone else or anything other than Jesus, we will sink, too, back into the tohu vabohu. It's a great spiritual lesson there. As long as Peter gazes at Christ, keeps his eyes fixed on Jesus, 
he is able to share in his divine power. Sacraments give us a share in the divine life. We can participate in what Jesus has by nature. And that means we can walk on the water too. The waters of failure, the waters of sin, the waters of of fear, the waters of hatred, the waters of violence. We can walk on them as long as we are fixed on Jesus. But now, put your faith in Money, pleasure, the latest guru, the latest philosophy, the latest fad, put your faith in those, you will sink back down. It's absolutely no accident that upon arriving at the shore, the disciples did him homage. The Greek word used behind that phrase indicates the posture and attitude of worship. They worshipped him, didn't just admire him, didn't just thank him, didn't just think, isn't that great what he did for us? No, 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 no. They got it. They saw. A bit like St. Thomas at the end of the Gospel of John, when he does him homage and says, my Lord and my God, they understand who he is. And then that straightforward confession, truly they say, You are the Son of God. Now listen, Christians, that's the confession of the church up and down the ages to the present time. When we stop saying that, we stop being the church. Our fear has been definitively conquered by the one who is alone capable of conquering it, the one who is truly the Son of God. Now, let's turn our attention to the second reading from the Apostle Paul. This passage is taken from that extraordinary middle section of the letter to the Romans, chapters 9 through 11. Can I invite you and your family to spend some time reading those great chapters? What Paul reflects on here is the relationship between Jesus and Judaism. Paul... Rabbi Shaul was a Jew to his bones, and he was fiercely proud of his Hebrew roots. When Paul came to Christ on the road to Damascus, he wasn't passing from one religion to another. We should never think of the conversion of Paul that way. He never did. Now today, if you went from being a Jew to being a Catholic, we'd say, sure, you pass from one religion to another. But Paul never would have thought of it that way. What he was finding in the risen Christ was the fulfillment of his Judaism. That's why it pained him, it cut him to the heart that many of his Jewish contemporaries weren't coming to Christ. Listen to him now from our reading. I have great sorrow and constant anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own people. That's how much it it cut Paul. But then he tells us now the solution. He tells the Romans how Israel prepared for Christ and how Christ was the fulfillment of Israel. Listen to him. They are Israelites. There's the adoption, the glory, the covenants, 
the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. He lists all these features of Israelite life. Why? Because he sees Christ as fulfilling all of them. What were the covenants but attempts to bring Israel and Yahweh together? What was the law? An attempt to accommodate Israel to Yahweh. What was the worship in the temple? An attempt to align Israel to Yahweh. Do you see what Paul saw? All of these are therefore anticipations of what appeared in Christ. God and man. Jesus divine and human. Jesus in his own person, the fulfillment of the covenant. What Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Abraham, the rest of them dreamed of occurred in him. Who is Jesus but the fulfillment of the law? Moses gives the law on Sinai. The fulfillment of that union between God and his people is Christ. What was the temple? The place of right praise. Jesus in his own person is the new temple. Paul saw what those disciples saw in the boat. He saw the divine Christ as the fulfillment of Israel. Friends, we've been saying it as Christians for 2,000 years. I'm saying it now as boldly as I can because the minute we stop saying it, we stop being the church. Jesus Christ, Son of God. Jesus Christ, true God and true man. Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of Israel. And therefore, Jesus Christ, our peace. And God bless you. I hope that you were moved today by the word on fire. I pray that together we might become a people on fire with love for God and neighbor here in Chicago and wherever these words are heard. Until we join Father Barron again next week, I'm Cardinal Francis George. God bless you.